Today, we're talking to Larry, author of The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brains in a High-Tech World, all about why we're more distracted than ever and how we can win our focus back. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. Larry, what's up, man? How are you? Good. How are you? Fantastic. The distracted mind. How did you get into this research? Like, what caused you to get into research about distracted minds? So, I've been looking at the effect of technology since the mid 1980s, believe it or not. And so, as things change in our world, they change rapidly. And somewhere along the way, um, there seemed to be three major game changers that, that just rocked our world. One was the World Wide Web, which made everything just touch screen, you know, touch, 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 click here, click on this icon. It's great. Um, and then so almost simultaneously, social media and smartphones. And so if you figure maybe 11, 10, 11, 12 years ago, when the, the original iPhone came out and started to spread, and when the original you know, some of the Friendster and MySpace and then, and, uh, you know, sort of burgeoning out of, tr- out of control. Um, in the meantime, as we were doing research, um, every single change in our world electronically produced more interesting research. I mean, along the way, we studied online dating, studied video game violence. Um, and as things changed, we just studied it. And when it got to mid, like 2014, 2015, it became very, clear that everybody was distracted. People started carrying their phones. I used to have my students in class go out for a half hour and watch people and report back how many people were carrying their phones in their hand or where they were between classes. And the interesting thing is around five, six, seven years ago, people literally started carrying them everywhere in their hands. Women would tuck them in their bra um, just to be close to that phone. And we realized that the phone had taken on this significance. It was no no longer just a phone, a little computer that you carried around. It was your everything. And so it seemed to me that that distraction was going on and did some little bit of research and decided I wanted to write a book on it. And I'd written six books before that, some with co-authors, some by myself. But I really felt like I needed a co-author on this one. I felt like I needed somebody who could explain what goes on in your brain when this happened. And I went to a conference um, in San Francisco, and I went to hear this one guy talk. And right after, I was kind of right in the middle of a row, and I didn't feel good creeping out of the row. This guy gets up, and he's got white hair, and he starts talking, starts talking about his research, and it's like, blew me away. He was showing research that showed, basically, that you could change a 60 or 70 year old person from a non um, multitasker, a non very good, not very good multitasker to a, as good as a 20 year old. And he did it just with a video game. And so at some point I decided, I just, I just uh, called him up. <laughs> I said, would you be interested in writing this book together? I said, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to finding somebody who can relate. And it seems like from your talk, you can really relate. And he, he took a couple months, um, but um, at some point, Adam Ghazali, who's, that's his name, came back to me and said, yep, we're going to do this together. And so it took a lot of process, but um, we ended up with a book where the first half of the book basically is the neuroscience of distraction um, in, in a very easily readable way. Um, and then the second half is kind of my psychology of distraction. 
part. And then at the very end, he puts a chapter in that says, here's how you can fix yourself from what we know about neuroscience. And I put in a chapter that says, here's how you can fix yourself, what I know from psychology. So it all just kind of fell together. And it's very funny because I don't usually keep track of sales. I mean, I just know that, that the book's selling every once in a while. I get a little pitch, little check and it dribbles in. And um, I just tried to buy myself some books um, and there are no more hardbacks anymore. The hardbacks are all gone, all sold. And I thought- On Amazon? Yeah. You know, when my, my publisher. Oh, your publisher. No hardbacks left. Oh man, what's the name of the book? Called The Distracted Mind, Ancient Brain in a High-Tech World. It's such a great subtitle because everyone can relate to that. When you hear that, it's really not a question of if it's true. You just inherently, instinctively know, yeah, that's what's going on. It just, it makes so much sense because our biology takes so much time to adapt. Yep. And, and we are, I mean, we really have a brain that hasn't changed much in, in, since caveman days, basically, since we had, since we had brains. And what's interesting is we're dealing with different problems than the caveman did back then. A caveman was dealing with survival and had to, and Adam writes some beautiful analogies about this in the book about how caveman goes out and has to have his senses going and has to kind of multitask to make sure that he doesn't smell anything of a jaguar and the, you know, in the, or look, look around and make sure he doesn't see one lurking in the, in the, in the uh, trees or whatever. And so they had to use their brains in a very different way. Now, if you think about it, we ended up in this world with technology that makes us multitask. It makes us distracted. And you can see, I was just reading today, there's a New York, New York Times um, story today in the, in the um, in, I guess maybe not in the paper, but online. Um, and they had interviewed me for the story. And but, but what was interesting is Gloria Mark, who is at UC Irvine, who's done research in this for a long time, has talked about how our focus has shrunk over time. And she's been studying this since the early 2000s. And she goes in and she looks at people and well, how they work. And she, here's how they work in their in the real environment. And she said, the fo our focus now is down to 50 seconds, 57 seconds or something like that. And that's frightening because that ruins that, that literally every minute you're sort of distracting yourself or you're being distracted. I'm going to drill down in a bunch of different areas because I just am a curious person. And you let me know if we get outside of an area or something like that, right? Um, first question, I got one about multitasking and then one about the focus shrinking. So with multitasking, you've brought it up a couple times already, but wasn't there a section in the book that there's no such thing as multitasking? And if so, what's the context of how you're using it? Okay, so... As human beings, we can multitask. Um, but in order to multitask, say you have two tasks. If one of them is pretty repetitive, pretty ingrained, and the other is cognitive, meaning it takes some of your brain to work on, you can do that. You can drive and talk to someone or listen to a podcast or whatever, because driving is a pretty much of an automatic kind of thing. I mean, we, we feel like we've just kind of gone into to some world where our brain is driving and we're not worried about it. What the problem is, is that people these days try to multitask to cognitive tasks. And I always tell people to understand this, go watch CNN for a while. And first, stare at the scroll on the bottom and read it to yourself and try to hear anything that you can hear from what the host is saying. 
Now turn it around and listen to the host, look at the host, but that now puts your gaze down to the words, but listen to the host. You can't do both. It's impossible to do both. So we live in a world where there's lots of cognitive tasks. And God love us, we have taken this thing, this phone, <laughs> and we have allowed it to interrupt us at will. We've allowed it to ding when we have a text message. We've allowed it to make all sorts of sounds, to vibrate, to do this, and to notify us. And that's making us multitask. Say I'm talking to you, and I get, I'm not multitasking now, I'm just listening to you and I'm talking to you. All of a sudden, my phone beeps. What happens to me? Physiologically, what happens is if you do a skin conductance test, your galvanic skin response, the sweat in your, in your hands, um, in your fingers, in your pits, whatever, registers. And what happens is you'll be doing this task and you go along and all of a sudden your phone beeps and you go like this. You'll spike, what's called a GSR spike, which means that you're aroused. What is that arousal? Well, it's a blast of chemicals in your brain that says, wait a minute, I got to see what I just got notified about. I got to do it. I got to do it. And it makes you look to your phone and pick it up and do it. It makes you multitask. And we allow it to. I mean, some of the research that we've done with young kids, teenagers and, and um, sort of Gen, Gen Z, I guess they call them, um, they get upwards of 100 notifications a day from their phone upwards of a hundred and they're spending seven plus hours per day on their phone. So I got sick of it about, I think it's about three years now, three years ago, I was just so sick of the pickups and I had this app that came out that talked about screen time that showed you your pickups per day. And so I said, I'm going to run an experiment because I'd already been doing the show for a couple of years at this point. And I'd gotten comfortable with this idea of having to put it into Do Not Disturb when I do the show. So I said I was going to run an experiment. I said I'm going to take two weeks and I'm going to turn off all notifications from my phone, just disable them all. And I'm going to see if, if I like it better or not. Very unscientific, very simply subjective. Hey, do I, do I like this better or not? They haven't come back on. Two, two of them have. The, my wife can break through anything. Uh, so her... And my calendar, my notifications of when I, when I have my next meeting, and that's it. So I've got calendar, and I want to be interrupted on those two things. Uh, everything else is just gone. And sometimes I look at my phone, and I've missed thirty calls over the past four days, or something like that. And I'm like, eh, if it's really important, it gets to me, right? Because I'm still on email, and I'm still on you know Slack, and all of these other forms of communication. And everyone knows that if they if they really need to get to me, they can just call my wife. And if you don't know my wife, then you don't really need to get to me. <laughs> well, interestingly enough, the, the what, what you did was get rid of all the external notifications. What you didn't do is get rid of the internal notifications. Correct. You can't. So what Gloria has found and what we always found in our research is that about half of your interruptions are external and half are internal. We don't see what's going on that makes this internal thing ping at us, but we know from the research that it's due to some sort of anxiety. And that anxiety could be very little, it could be very big, but it pushes you, like I said, it pushes you to grab your phone. So for example, if, you have an, if you're an avid text messenger and you have not checked your text and turned off your notifications, 
and you haven't checked your texts in a period of time, your brain is going to tell you, you better check that or I'm going to make your body really nervous and really anxious. I'm going to spew out cortisol at a rapid pace so that your body gets really anxious and really nervous. And the more anxious and nervous you get, the more you need to distract yourself. Okay, so I want to talk about that. Fully agree. And my pickups, they went down probably about 50%, right? They, they didn't go down completely. They're still absurdly high. 80 pickups a day or whatever it may be. It's, it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot. And so I started watching myself. I, I like to look at myself like a monkey. I'm like, what's this monkey doing, right? And I tried different things to get control of this autonomous, uncontrollable physiological situation. Now, the only thing that I have done to be successful is I, I look at it like a drug, okay? I used to be very overweight. So for me, it's like chocolate, right? So I look at it like that. And here's the thing. If I have a little bit of chocolate, psh, I'm going on the bend. I, I, I'm, I'm off. I, like I'm, I'm in chocolate city, right? So I, if I stay away from it completely, I'm good, right? And so I took that and applied it to this. And I said, okay, how can I control myself with this? Uh, many experiments tried, failed, didn't do it. Like, you know, oh, only, you know, during these times, you know, different, different ways. Now, I'm getting into the details a little bit there, but I'll back up and say the only way I've had success with it is in the morning. I don't touch my phone until everything that I want to do is done. And that's usually around 9.30 in my local time zone. And right. I don't have one meeting scheduled prior to 9.30. So I know every single day of the week that there is nothing on my calendar uh, to 9.30. And that's when I deal with my, my faith, my fitness, my mindset, my wife, my kids, my breakfast. You know, Those things are happening. The things that are really important to me, whether I have a lot or I have a little, they're getting done before I enter Distraction City, which lasts until I put my phone down for bed at night. So I, I, I get distracted 9.30 <laughs> to, to 8.30 at night or 9 o'clock. So I got, I'm getting it for 12 hours a day, man. I'm not sitting here saying that I've, I've completely solved this, but I have this beautiful window from like 5.30 a.m. to 9.30 that's like before technology existed, and I love it. And that's smart. Let me tell you a little study that was done that kind of corroborates what you're saying. So this researcher went and found, I don't know, 60, 70 families that had a mom and dad and a teenager. And what, before they started, they did all sorts of uh, surveys that showed how much they used each different kind of technology. So how much they used social media, how much they used email, how much they used messaging, whatever, everything. Then what they did is they had them swab themselves, meaning they take a swab, a swab, put it in a little container, put it in the refrigerator, mark down what time it was. And they do that right as they woke up. They do it 30 minutes later. And then I don't remember how much during the day because that was unimportant to me. What they found was they first looked at, what is there any relationship between your cortisol levels, because that's what they were measuring, between the time you wake up and 30 minutes later? Okay, so you got the scenario. Mm -hmm. So for moms, no amount of technology related to their ups or downs of cortisol between waking and 30 minutes. By the way, when we awaken, cortisol starts. It's the thing that gets us going in the morning. And so it, there's stuff there. There's cortisol there anyway. 
when they looked at dads, the only type of technology use that correlated with the cortisol was email. So those those dads who did more email showed a bigger change between awakening and 30 minutes later. Now, when they looked at the teenagers, only also only one correlated with an increase in cortisol. Those teens who use more social media mm-hmm. showed more of an increase in cortisol between awakening and 30 minutes later. Yeah. That's frightening. I mean, that goes along with what you just said about what you do for yourself. What you're doing is you're avoiding having that happen to you. Yes. Teenagers, teenagers can't do that. They can't avoid it. You can't really expect them to. Their brain's not even formed. So <laughs> that's, that's true. Their brain, this part of the brain, which makes all your decisions for you, the prefrontal cortex, which directs everything in your mind and your brain, everything in your body is not fully developed until you're in your 20s, if yeah. not. I know when it developed for me because I went on a spiritual exploration. And I've talked to some other people and they have had similar experiences. Around 25 to 27, I had this awareness of self in a different way. You know, I'd say I was self-aware all through my 20s, but it was just a different way of I'm this human in this world and I have this impact and I can gather these resources and this is kind of what's going on around me. That didn't happen until 25 to 27. I mean, it was in... Right when I got to that moment, I was like, oh man, we let people like vote and I, all that stuff before like at 18. We need to raise that to at least when they're brain. Like, look, I'm all about freedom, 100%. I'm, I'm super into it. But we should let the people that make the rules at least have the physically detectable thing that is helping them think be completely developed. Right. right? And teenagers don't. And I know. 18-year-olds don't and probably 21-year-olds don't completely. I mean, it's a process. What happens is when you're, when you're born, all of your neurons in your brain are like live wires. And what happens is these little cells called myelin start wrapping around the neurons like rubber around a cord that goes into the wall. When, when you are a baby... For example, your nerves are, your neurons are all just like live wires. So babies just flail around and that's why they tell you to swaddle them because it's, because it's kind of painful for them to have these neurons flaring. As you get older and they start getting coated with this myelin, then you're able to better transmit information and deal with information coming in and going out. Because peripheral cortex is dealing with all this stuff from everywhere, right? With sounds, sights, things people do. Um, and, and that takes a long time in the prefrontal cortex. It's the last part of your body to be myelinated. And if it's not completely myelinated, it might be okay at 21. It might be maybe 70% myelinated, maybe at 21. Some people might not even be that at 21. But at 18, you're definitely not. Yes. And that's a big difference. And I definitely respect that spectrum, right? Like there's there's always going to be that 16-year-old that's far, like the one in a million that's way farther ahead in their development. But you don't make rules on the exception, make rules on the rules, you know. With all of your experience and the interviews that you do, you must have one takeaway, one thing that someone can do to improve the quality of their life, given all of these distractions. So one of the things that I think is most important, one of the things I took away from the distracted mind is that what distraction does is it stops you from having a good focal attention. 
and it doesn't necessarily cause major problems, but it can. But what we need to do is to learn how to focus. And for Gloria's work, we can't focus for 57 seconds is our max. I mean, some of my, my research shows two minutes, three minutes, four minutes. One of the studies I, I did, should, we had somebody study something super important for 15 minutes and somebody watch over their shoulder. They were able to study something very important for nine minutes out of the 15. So they're not doing a very good job. So what I've come up with is, is a strategy that is very simple that helps you mold your attention, increase it, make it better, make it more consistent. It's called a tech break. And basically what you do is you take your phone like this. You set the alarm for one minute, two minutes, some small amount. During that one or two minutes, you can look at anything you want. Look at anything on your phone, look at anything on your laptop if it's there or whatever screens you have. When that alarm goes off, you close everything. If you're using your laptop, you do not minimize it because if you minimize it, it's down at the bottom and it can still distract you. So you literally shut everything down on your, on your laptop, you shut everything down on your phone, and then what you do is set the alarm for 15 minutes. Put this upside down right in front of your face, upside down. The reason we put it upside down is so you don't see anything flashing on the screen. The reason it's in front of your face is because it's a signal to your brain, to your prefrontal cortex that says, don't worry you will get to me in 15 minutes or less. When the alarm goes off, you set it for one to two minutes, whatever you choose. Do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. Go get something to eat. Uh, do whatever you want in your two, one, one to two minutes, or however many minutes, doesn't matter. Set it for 15 minutes again. What happens is you start getting better and better at the 15 minutes. And you know you're better when all of a sudden the alarm goes off and you go in your head, wait, 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 I want to finish what I'm working on. I want to finish writing this. I want to finish this email. I want to finish this reading this paragraph. Then what you do is you can crank it up. So instead of 15 minutes, make it 20 minutes. Or if you're really bold, make it 30 minutes. And so you slightly edge your attention up. So, and I, th I think, by the way, if you can get 30 minutes out of attention these days, given our attention spans about a minute, if we're lucky, then that's great. And it all comes from you exercising these tech breaks so they work. Now, you don't have to do them when you're just studying, when you're just working. You can do them at the dinner table because everybody brings their phones to the dinner table and they're always looking at them. You could bring it to the restaurant when you're out with friends and they all have their cell phones and they're all looking periodically. You make tech breaks out of it. You literally make tech breaks. You can do it when you're watching a movie with your spouse. My spouse tends to multi-screen. I would rather set, set it so for two minutes we can talk, we, she can multi-screen, whatever, and then we go back to focus on what we're looking at on TV. You can use it everywhere. It works perfectly because it builds your brain into realizing that, oh, I can attend. I'm not screwing up anything by not looking at this phone for 15 minutes or 20 minutes or 25 or 30 minutes. However, you do have to alert everybody you're doing it because otherwise they'll start texting you madly. Why aren't you? Why aren't you? Look, why aren't you? Are you mad at me? Are you angry with me? Why aren't you responding to my text? Blah, blah, blah. And I always tell my students when I taught this stuff to, Go and look online to it um, and look for something that's called Key and Peel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Duo. Um, and they did one called Texting. And if you look at that, it shows what happens with texting going bad. That we just misinterpret. So you have to tell everybody you're doing this. You have to say, look, I'm trying to get my attention up. I will get back to it within 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever. 
to tell all your social media friends too, because otherwise they'll start posting and bugging you. And <laughs> we do that at work a little bit. So we have Slack as our team messenger, and part of your onboarding process is configuring your Slack work hours. That way, if people do want to message you after work hours, you don't get notified of it. So that was one step that we took. The other one was, you're exactly right. When I did that experiment, I started telling everybody, definitely at the company and everybody that was near me, hey, I'm not going to you know, be at my phone for these periods of times. And But you keep mentioning this, this concept that I want to just go a little bit farther into, and it's the decision. So when I was thinking, oh, you know, I'll just use this a little bit less, or I, I'll try not to do it as much, I, I, I failed. But when I put on my calendar and made a decision, this is how I'm going to live my life, my success rate is significant. Now, it's not perfect all the time. Like I'll have a good streak of a month or two, and then I'll get off for a couple of weeks, and then I'll be back on it for a month or two. So it's, it's, it's not perfect, right? It's always a work in progress. But the big difference that allowed me to get over the hurdle of just utter failure failure on an every other day basis was I put it in my calendar and I made a decision to myself this and here's the thing from 5 thir- if you look at my calendar which my whole team can see my calendar so it, it you will see from 5:30 to 9:30 there's activities the whole way down now I know what they are so I don't have to look at my phone but I, I always know that if I get distracted and, and want to pick up my phone or if I'm at a loss of what I'm going to do, it's already predetermined what I'm doing in that time. Because if I just chose a giant block of time, I was failing because it was just like no phone time. And then I wouldn't have things set up to do. And I'm like, well, I might as well take, see what's going on in the sales chat, you know? <laughs> or just grab your phone and randomly tap something, some icon. Yeah, some- got to tap something. People yeah. have tried all sorts of strategies. I mean, they've tried, you know, a whole weekend up in the mountains mm-hmm. where you can't get phone reception. They've tried anything you can think of. They've tried, just like it sounds like you went through a bunch of different things. I mean, they tried the do not disturb. But that the do not disturb on an iPhone is is stupid because it allows you, if, if it goes off, you can change it. I mean, if it tries to disturb you, you have the option to change it right there. So you can go, oh, wait, I'll, I'll be disturbed right now. It's, it's not foolproof. It also makes people crazy, quite honestly, because they're not controlling it. That's what the tech break, you're in control. That's why I like it, is you're in control. You decide what attention span you want. It's your choice. You want If you want to be constantly interrupted, be constantly interrupted. One of the cool ones that I heard that I think could augment this is if you buy a little light, a little round light that is either red or green, and you pull on your desk at work, and when you are working, you make it red. So it's a little signal to everybody else, hey, don't come in my cubicle and you know and bug me and talk to me because I'm working. When you're available, maybe you're working, but you're available, turn it to green. So people then know. It's a silly little trick. But it allows you more chance to be able to focus that attention and then not be distracted. By the way, distraction is terrible. When you're distracted, the cool little experiments that I've seen that go on, when you're distracted, you don't go back to exactly where you left. You have to thumb back a ways. It's like if you're reading a chemistry book, for example, or whatever, and you are distracted, even if you put your finger right where you were distracted at that point, you still won't remember and you still have to flip back. Um, well, I read I read um, fiction a lot. And if I'm reading fiction and then I get distracted, something happens, I get distracted, come back. Typically, the resumption lag is typically about 20 minutes, by the way. That's the typical one in business, at least. 
It takes you about 20 minutes to get back to where you were. In that, if I'm reading that book, I have to flip back four, five, six pages because I've lost in my brain where I was. And so I have to build up those brain structures again so that, that I basically get back to where I was. Well, that's fiction. Think about what happens in the business world. Um, you get distracted. You're working on a project. You're writing something. Whatever you're doing, you have to go back and reconnect with it and restructure it. And maybe you won't be able to put it together the way you had left it. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of as a brain structure. This is not really true, but think about lighting up this whole area to do what you're working on. When you come back, that area is not lit up anymore. You have to pour the blood over there and the glucose and the oxygen that, that your neurons need to work and build that back up. But you may not be able to build it back up to where it was before. Maybe you had this real epiphany, but that epiphany is gone. There are so many people listening to this right now that are probably freaking out that you just nailed it because my background is software engineering. We solve complicated problems through software. And I, I used to tell, try to explain it to my wife because she was in a veterinary world where there was maybe trauma and everything was in real time situation where I was in problem solving world where I had to put this complex problem, all of these models into my head and try to figure out how to solve relationships between them. And then someone would come in and they'd be like, Hey Joel. And, and now I have to go load everything back up. So I used to refer to this for the past 20 years. I called it clearing my cache. You know, in your browser, you've got the memory. It's like if somebody interrupts me or something when I'm working on a hard problem, it's clearing my cache. It feels so good right now. It feels better than a notification right now to hear you tell me that there's some sort of biological reasoning that, that it's actually happening, that you know as a professor that this is something that happens versus it just being in my head. Because I've had people roll their eyes at me all the time. Oh, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Well, this is, I mean, this is what the first half of the book is about. This is what Adam explains why this happens to us, why we have to reconnect with our brain. And, and it's fascinating to me. I'm not a neuroscientist. I love, I've read a bunch of neuroscience. I'm not a neuroscientist by any stretch of the imagination. You sound like one, by well, the way. Well, I understand yeah. it enough to be dangerous. Yeah. I understand just enough to give you as-if analogies about stuff in your brain. But what I do know is that everything emanates from our brain. Everything emanates from our brain. And it's all about the biochemistry of your brain and the electrical energy in your brain. I mean, for example, I have Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's disease is a lack of dopamine. It's funny because we think of dopamine as, well, wait, isn't dopamine the thing that you get when you're like a video game player and you get a rush of dopamine and you need to keep playing more and more to get more and more dopamine? Well, I have a limited amount of dopamine in my brain. It has nothing to do with, with video gaming. What it has to do with is it dopamine also monitors and modifies and it is responsible for your walking, your gait, your arms, your legs. Really? Um, left arm does not swing when I walk. That's because I have a very little dopamine. But it's also responsible for other things. For example, when you have Parkinson's, one of the first early symptoms is, is your sense of smell. Lack of dopamine makes your sense of smell go up So it's all biochemical. And this is what Adam so nicely explains in the first half of the book, because he understands he's not only um, a medical doctor, in neuroscience or neurology, he has a PhD in, in neuroscience too. So he understands both that kind of the neurology of it and the more important perception of it. And he does a beautiful job. I mean, we took, we, we wrote for almost two years back and forth and back and forth on this book because we wanted to make it readable 
for anybody. We were, we're a little worried because we're both kind of, you know, up in that that world where you publish and perish and you do a lot of heavy-duty research. And how do we then explain the research? How do we explain the brain, the psychology, to somebody who doesn't really know anything about what we'd like to learn? And so we brought it, we were able to bring it down to a level that we didn't dumbify it, but we made it readable. You're like the Neil deGrasse Tyson of psychology. and yeah. <laughs> Which is why I love Neil deGrasse Tyson, because he's able to take astronomical stuff, and which is very complex, and bring it down to a level that you can understand. Good example. The, do you think any of these uh, vitamins that improve focus, do they have any validity to the neurochemistry or the biochemistry? If anybody out there is listening from a, from a company that puts this together, no, <laughs> no, no, they're, 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 no, they're just kind of worthless. Same thing with, you know, the brain games that you can get online and things like that. Well, the research shows that they might help you a little bit, but no, no. I mean, what helps you is understanding what is causing you to move your focus and attention away. And often it's you distracting yourself. We've done some research. We've tried to get people, you were talking about pickups, how many times you pick, pick up your phone and open it up. We did some experiments with some, again, Gen Z kids, like average age 25. So they're on that cusp of that prefrontal cortex. And we gave them some strategies and that would help to, the idea to help them use their phone less. And we told them this, pick a couple of these strategies that we think might help use your phone less. And we taught them tech breaks if they wanted to use it. We had like 20, 21 different kinds of strategies that they could use. Any, any ones they wanted, pick three. And then we charted it, looked at their number of pickups and the amount of time they spent over in like all day long, up to when they started it, and then right during it and after it. And what we saw is this is pickups. Pickups started here. When we started this three weeks, went down a little, stayed down, stayed down, stayed down. If a three-week period popped right up to where it was before, if not a little higher. So we thought, made a mistake. Six weeks should do it. Same thing with six weeks. Stayed fine for a little bit of help for six weeks, popped right back up again. These these kind of things that we try to do don't work. Um, pills don't work. These strategies, these book strategies, in general don't work. What you need to be do is to be really aware of why you're doing it. I mean, and that was the whole purpose of the book was to help you understand from both the biological and neurological perspective and my psychological perspective, what, what's driving this? What is making you crazy out there? And then how can you back up and take some of these strategies that we offer, we offer a lot of strategies, and implement them in your life just like you have to, to, to cut your anxiety down and to make you more productive, basically. I find the, the words reducing anxiety to be more valuable than stopping distraction. I don't know why, but I do because I know what anxiety feels like and I hate that. And I hate it when a external thing uh, is causing this anxiety. So yeah, just, just to back up for a second, when you said you were going... Uh, the number of pickups, and then they stopped for for six weeks. Can you remind me again? They didn't stop. They reduced oh, they, the number of pickups. And, and what was what was causing that reduction? Um, they were they were doing these strategies that we asked them to do. So, for example, they okay. were doing tech breaks. So they were they yeah. were on. Uh, let's see, what were some of the others? Oh, they were taking each one of their social media icons, putting them in folders, and hiding them 
in the, in the hopes that that would help them not spend more time because everybody has their main social media right on their front page of their phone. And so they were, we were hoping that would happen. We asked them to forget, tell their, their phone to forget all the passwords for all the social media sites. So they had to redo all the passwords if they wanted to get in. They were smarter than us. What they figured out is they could use one password to get into all of them. And so they, they that one didn't work. But there were three that kind of worked, that kind of worked and kind of got a little bit of a reduction in their usage, but then it shot right back up after after three weeks or after the six weeks. You have to be able to do it yourself. Let me tell you an interesting study that my colleague Nancy Cheever did, which will explain to you what the anxiety is. So her what her what she did is she took people, brought them into into the lab, sat them down in front of a monitor, and she she explained to them, she said, I'm gonna take these two little clips, I'm gonna put them on your fingers. They don't hurt, they're just on your fingers. Um, and she said, this one measures your heart rate. This one measures your arousal, your galvanic skin response. And then she said, okay, just put your phone next to you and let's start. And there'll be a test afterwards. And it, when, I don't remember if she gave them a bonus if they did well in the test. I don't remember what that was about. But what I do know is after a minute or two, she said, wait, 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 we have to stop. The phone right next to you is interfering with our, with these little gizmos on your fingers. I'm going to just move the phone back here about five feet on this table. Is that okay? Or she says, sure. Now, what she did is during the next 20 minutes, something like that, she texted them four times. They couldn't do anything about getting their text. She texted them four times. First time she texted them, spike. Second time, spike. Third time, spike. Fourth time, spike. Every single time the text message went off, arousal spiked. That is biochemical. That is probably cortisol, alpha amylase, a bunch of chemicals in your brain. Now, it's interesting because you would think that someone like Anderson Cooper, for example, might be able to focus better because he's on television all the time. He has to focus. He has to pay attention. He has to not get that cortisol rush. So we brought him into the lab because they came and interviewed us for 60 minutes. And he did exactly the same thing. Spike, 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 spike. When we talked to him afterwards, he said, yeah, I was, I was afraid I was missing something. And my anxiety went up. He said, I could feel it. It went up. So it's interesting because if you go to my website, drlarryrosen.com, you'll see at the top a link there. And I encourage people to go and watch what happens because even if Arson Cooper can't do it, how can we do it? And by the way, we had teenagers do it too. Not, not part of that study, but somebody else, Nancy brought in some teenagers and they, teenage girls, and they spiked higher. More anxiety. 31% of teenagers will have an anxiety episode during their teen years. Yeah, well, women tend to be uh, more social anyways, right? And so these devices are largely associated with our ability to communicate. And, Although that um, yep, is changing between usage from girls and usage from boys. It's, it's almost identical. Oh, how so? Oh, it's, it's almost identical. It's almost identical now. We think girls would be on their phones more often because they're more talky, more chatty, more communicative. It's not the same. Boys are on just as much. But what, what are they doing on the phone? Well, that's, yeah, they're doing different things on the phone. Although, yeah. enough, a lot of that is video game playing while you're talking to other friends at the same time. Mm. So it's connection, it's communicating, it's just different. Yeah. That, that was, that's most of my childhood, right? <laughs> playing video games while making friends online. And yeah. Now, I'm curious to know about, did anything in your research or from your colleagues' studies, talk about this concept that back in the 80s, 
everything was sort of distributed in the sense that my money was over here at the bank that I walked into and my food was, you know, over here and my dollars and like, or that's the same example, but you know, my communication, maybe where I sit down and write letters, all of these places were somewhere different. And now they've all condensed into this, my safety. This is my safety. If I need an ambulance, this is my money. If I need money, this is my, my food. I order Instacart. They bring me groceries. This is, this is so important to me. Is that my camera? This is my GPS. This is my everything. Yeah. Not a computer. It's not a phone. It's a no. computer. Yeah. It's more than a computer. It's a computer plus an iPod plus GPS plus all of this crammed into this one little device. And we can't be without it. Watch people at stoplights when the light turns red. They immediately grab their phone because they have 45 mm-hmm. seconds. I need 45 seconds to do something. And then the light turns green and everybody behind them starts honking. It's yep. just not stop yourself from grabbing that phone. That's why I do the tech breaks to tune you into realizing how... You can't focus for 15 minutes. Some people have to start with five minutes of focus because yeah. they, they can't do the 15. Well, when I drive my RV, we have like a you know big RV. And when I do that, my wife has possession of my phone. Cool. You know, just because it's a giant multi-thousand pound rig, you know, and, and even if I'm at a stoplight or something like that, it, it just helps so much if you put the barrier up that this is just not going to happen. Right. And one of the things that we do from time to time, it comes and goes, is we do what we call no phone time. And my kids love to yell no phone time. And basically, whenever they yell no phone time, we let them grab our phones and put them in the cupboard. And then... Now, how old are kids? Five, three, and three months. So well, not wait, three-month-old. Six years. Yeah? What's going to happen in six years? Your five-year-old will be 11 years old. will have mm-hmm. his own phone. will hide in the bedroom... Um, and not come out for hours because the 11 year old's been busy doing what 11 year olds do, which is playing Fortnite or whatever, or watching other people play Fortnite or talking to friends while they're playing Fortnite or whatever's hot at that point. Who knows what it could be? And they will be less communicative to you because they're communicating more online. And five, that's cute for them to say no phone time because they're modifying your behavior. Yeah. Um, yep. If you yell no phone time at 11, well, I can tell you because I, I, I have two 10 year old two 10-year-old grandkids, a nine-year-old grandkid, and then five, three, one, just born. And um, the 10-year-old and the nine-year-old boys, very hard to get them off their iPads. Very hard. Even even when they're doing things that I think are appropriate, like watching one of them plays um, soccer online. They, they it's, a, it's, it's a program, I guess. It's a game that they can... Yeah. They can actually, it does, it does the World Cup, so they can pick a team they want and play each game with the team and they can control it. And all this. The other one looks at football stuff because he's into football. It is so hard to drag them away. Literally, their mom will say, "Okay, done," and she'll she'll shut it down whoop, from a distance. And mm-hmm. then I've seen I've seen at least this happen several times where they go up and oh, mom, please, please. I told you five minutes ago I was going to turn it off. Please, just another five minutes. I just need. Please, please, please. I'll do anything you want. Literally, I watched one of them get down on his knees in front of me. <laughs> please let me do it just five more minutes now if you're a good parent what you recognize is you set the you set the the behavior first with the consequences attached to it at the same time so you say i'm going to set the phone for 15 i'm going to set my phone for 15 minutes you can play for 15 minutes when the phone goes off i'll set it for another two minutes so that you can wrap up what you're doing and if you do that great 
you'll get more time later on today. You get to use more time. If you don't, you'll lose time. Not that I'm going to take it away because that never works. Not that I'm going to take it away, but you will lose time. So instead of 15 minutes, if you don't do it, you might lose 10 minutes and you only have five minutes the next time. So you tell them the behavior they need to do and the consequences. So there's no pleading. You can't plead with me. Here, here's what we did. Here's, here's the chart that said, do it. Do your 15 minutes. Stop when I tell you to stop and you will get extra five minutes later on or next 10 minutes later on or whatever. Yeah, that's why it's important to try to do it as early as possible. So, I mean, we, we do the app limited time. So, say you get the hour and then at this age so far, when, when it's up, they are like, oh, and then they just hand it to us. But we don't, ha- we haven't yet had to like pry it away from them. Yeah, five um, years old, five years old, probably yeah. not. Maybe, maybe in a couple of years. I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. Well, 100%. Is it a he or a she? I have a, a daughter who's five, a son who's four, and then my other son's three months. Yeah. So the five and the four year olds are going to start wanting to connect because all their friends are connecting. Well, that's exactly what happened. Thank you, Michael Wade, my my buddy who listens to the show. He's an investor in the company and everything. He was driving through. He's got, I think, five girls, uh, kids. And I have a little farm outside of Nashville because we got sick of the cookie cutter stuff. And we're like, I'm on technology all day. We live in this busy little neighborhood. It's like, let's go out in the middle of nowhere and, and live out there. So we did. And he was driving through Tennessee and he's like, hey, I'm driving through. So they stayed the night at our house and introduced our kids to Fortnite. And so now our kids know what Fortnite is and they know that they can talk to Michael Wade's children uh, on, on Fortnite. Of and course. so we now Fortnite has uh, app-controlled limitations on it. And, and you know what? They're, they're little kids. Think about when they're 10, 11, 12, when they're teenagers. Oh my God, Te- parents are having so much trouble with this with teenagers because first of all, the pandemic didn't help this. It just increased, rapidly increased the screen time and also was very um, difficult for parents because they had to work at home. And so it, it felt right that when the kids were done with school, that you just give them their iPads, let them, let them play for you know, an hour so I can get some work done. Uh, it really messed things up. And same thing with any online class and online education. It's just difficult because you're online so much that it seems like that's your world. That's where you should be. And the kids just kind of think that they're one, one with their phone, one with their iPad. I mean, it's, it's, not, a, it's not an iPad, it's, it's an appendage now. Oh, yeah. It's an extension of ourselves. Just yep. to give you context for this whole thing, I'm 35. Uh, and I'm 72, I, by the way. I'm are you really? You're 72? Yep. Wow, dude, I was going to guess early 60s, man. Congratulations. You're doing well. <laughs> Thank you. But I was there for when the internet came out in a larger sense, um, like very aware of when MySpace happened. Like I can remember that really easily. I can remember a, a lot of the ad- advancements in, in technology. Um, and I, I did want to make one quick correction. It wasn't Fortnite, it was Roblox. Wow. Right? I don't, I don't know actually, if... The new yeah. thing. My kids, I, my new kids tell me, ah, Fortnite's, you know, Fortnite's old now. It's Roblox now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Roblox. You're not a Luddite. Okay, you're not saying don't do this and get rid of it and and all of that, but you are saying this is how it works. Be aware of it, and here are some tactics for how you can increase your attention span or your focus. Right, right, exactly. And okay, not, not only am I not a luddite, but I'm one of the worst offenders. Is I mean, I, <laughs> when, when I get my weekly Sunday pop up that says you've used how much screen time, I I ignore looking at. 
My wife won't let me look at hers often. I don't want to know. And particularly bad, I'm a Dodger fan, so baseball season, it's really bad because I watch all the games on my phone. And so it's like, oh yeah, I used 18 hours last week, 25 hours last week, 50 hours. It's like, okay, it's meaningless, but but I, I do have this phone. This phone never is very far away from me. It's now about six inches away at the most. Now, do you podcast or do you talk to other people about this? I write about it sometimes on Psychology Today, but but no, I mean, that's why I wrote The Distracted Mind. It's like, put it in one place, let people hear what it's about, and then hope that people will take it and try some of the things that we suggest. And that's all we're asking is just try these. Here's a couple. It's an interesting one. Our brain gets overloaded when we do anything for too long. So we are on, I mean, when, when you're at work, you're on all day, right? Straight time, you're on your phone, you're on, I mean, you're on the device, some screen. Too much screen time in a row kind of jumbles your brain. It's kind of like your brain starts to not be able to function as well after 60 to 90 minutes. And so one of the recommendations, it's been a longstanding recommendation in our world, is that you take a break every 60 to 90 minutes. And you literally take a break, you set your alarm for 10 minutes saying, do something. One of the best things you can do is go out in nature. Mm. There's solid research that shows that if you are walking in a very rough area where there's lots of traffic and stuff, your brain is like going and going, 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 trying to process everything. As soon as you step into something like a park, for example, the activity goes way down and you mellow out. It takes maybe 10 minutes at the most. And there's other suggestions in there too that you can do, but we need to kind of give our brain a rest about every hour. We don't because we're able for you work in a company, you work in eight hours a day, 10 hours, 12 hours, you're on your screen, you need to take a break and go do something that's non-technological. Well, I'm very blessed because when we made that move out here to the farm, I built the studio about 50, 25, 50 yards from the main house. And the, you, you can't see neighbors, it's just forest and woods all around us. And so when I walk back and forth for lunch and things like that, I'm just sort of walking through nature and you're exactly right. Sometimes I'll just stare. There, we, especially at, when the seasons change, we get a lot of deer and turkey and go, you know, gophers or whatever walking through the property. But yeah, it's 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 amazing how good I can feel even just on that thirty second walk. You know, yeah. so I'm glad that there's some science behind that. Yeah, an EEG cap on you. Okay, it would, it would be all electrical everywhere in your brain until you walked outside and then it see the electrical not go away, but it go calms down. It's not as crazy electrical. So yeah, you are calming your brain. Something we don't think about because we're so hooked onto screens. There's screens everywhere. There's screens at work, there's screens in our cars, there's screens everywhere. We're almost always inside of a screen. And it's just overloading. It's not bad. It's just overloading. I'm not telling people to take, you know, a week break, an hour break or anything. Ten minutes works. When are we going to put it into our brain? And then there's no screen. We just see it in our head. Well, that is one of the <laughs> the fears of of changes over time. I mean, I remember re- reading a book, I don't know, maybe 15 years ago. I don't even remember the name of the book, but you'd, people would come home and they'd plug into the wall and they'd be in this internet kind of thing. It was before the internet, but this thing where they would be now in the middle of, and somebody told me that, that um, step into the matrix. That's kind of what our world has become. We're, we're screen embedded already. And are we going to get it literally embedded in us? 
Yeah, possibly. At some point, mm, there, yeah. there are um, people who have that done. Um, there's there's a company, I forget what they are, that all of their... Neuralink. Yeah. All of their people are chipped. Oh, yeah, I read about them too. I did a, a, a special episode with a guy who's a transhumanist. And he did a documentary about all the people embedding. There's a whole... Do you know about this underground network of people that embed electronics into their body? No. They work with tattoo parlors and piercing shops. And they and they embed, because those people know how to do that type of stuff with the skin, they embed electronics into their bodies to do all sorts of things. One guy took his Honda Civic and put a RFID chip in his palm so it only reads to that. Another person put a light on the top of their head. It's like permanently there and it changes colors based off of mood or something of that nature it's it's on amazon it's a free i think it's a free documentary but it's so interesting because they go into these underground places where these people are working on these projects because it's not legal uh to some degree there's there's i don't think there's a shop you can go to and walk in the front door and say hey cut me open and put this sensor inside of my arm yeah and and i don't know whether it'll be in our arms our palms our brains but it, it will be there yeah We'll be there at some point in our in our world, um, maybe not in my world, um, maybe even not in your world, but maybe in your kid's world or grandkid's world, that will be the, the reality. I mean, it's funny because you say that because, again, with my Parkinson's, it's very interesting. It's one of the treatments is to embed this thing in your brain um, that sends a 9-volt battery shock through your brain and seems to work on some level to, to get rid of the tremors that Parkinson's brings. So, yeah, there. I mean, there's a lot of stuff embedded embedded already there's a lot of things that that with the people in the real world have tried not just underground but in the real world have tried oh yeah um with approval from wherever they're getting the grant from i want you to imagine in your head have you ever seen those films where they're like stop animation you know maybe like a cardboard character and they just take a frame here and there so it's kind of a jagged animation mm-hmm. sure. and then imagine the uh, evolution and integration of silicon to humanity and computing to humanity. And what you will see if you play that movie out up until this point is you'll see it starting in big rooms, you know, giant, and then getting smaller and closer to us and smaller and closer to us. And, so, and that keeps repeating all the way down to the fact that there's hundreds, if not thousands, of embeddable medical devices right now that you can, from your heart to your brain to everything. And then if you just... It's not a hard leap to just say, all right, let that trend continue for 50 years. And now the computers are inside of us 100% of the time. Yeah, we won't need to have the thing that you tap to see what your, what your um, blood chemistry is like. You can, you can put this thing on your side and embed it, and it'll tell you if, if you have a problem with what you're eating. Yeah. Change, changes, says, no, you eat spaghetti now, it's going gonna, it's gonna to jack up your whatever and, and change your numbers, and you're not going to get the appropriate readings that you want. I mean, so... It's still now only really a short hop away from that being completely embedded, not just attached. Have we made any progress as far as last time I looked into it was maybe three to five years ago, our understanding of consciousness, and I was specifically looking at people who did anesthesiology. Have we made any progress on our understanding of consciousness, or is it about where it's about five years ago? Yeah, it's interesting you say that because in the New York Times today, there was a big article about AI and consciousness. It's called the C word. They don't talk about it. The C word. I keep reading through trying. What is the C word here? It's not the C word I know of. <laughs> but um, yeah, they talk about the fact that um, that AI dabbles just in the edge of, of talking about whether it's conscious or not. Um, and what is consciousness? 
what is a conscious entity, like an AI entity? What makes it conscious? I know people who are less conscious than ChatGPT. <laughs> you can ask it things and it gives you answers. I know people that don't even, you can't even do that. You know, so it's like, what is it? It's hard to define. And if, if you take that farther, I can give it instruction and it can do things it wasn't intent, like specifically programmed to do. And I was like, if that's not interacting with a person and training them for a new job, then I don't know what is. The only difference right now, I believe, or one of the main differences right now, although humans are very dynamic and there's, I still leave room for spiritual concepts as well. But one of the main differences is the physical representation and in, in reality in the sense that it doesn't have its exoskeleton fully operating yet. But as far as processing information, I mean, man, it's, and it's funny because you'll see, um, who did I see? I think it was Andreessen Horowitz, uh, or Mr. Andreessen from the Andreessen Horowitz investors and um, Mark, I think is his name. And then uh, Musk and some other people, and they were sort of poking fun at these Neanderthals who thought J- uh, GPT was conscious and whatnot. I was like, guys, it's not. It's not that far off. I mean, I'm on. I've been writing software for 20 years. Like, it's it's I, at the it's at the edge. But but where where it changes it, what they were talking about in the article, which is interesting, is how will people react when you start moving your software in this direction? Because so far, AI has really just been a tool. It uses kind of a neural network to to make something, you know, an entity or really just a computer program, as you know, to learn and to get better and get better and better and better at learning. But it's not conscious. It's not consciousness. You just you fed it in there. You just let it see all the all the examples of whatever it is you want it to do, and it can then do it. I mean, well, they can talk to you and they can talk back and forth as though they're real human beings, but they're not. It's just a neural network in there that's been processing and it's been fed hundreds of thousands of cases to allow it to come to to some point where it can do a task but it's not conscious there's no place but, in yeah it. but how do you you can't you're saying it's not conscious and you don't you can't even define consciousness though right well the interesting part is i think the definition of consciousness to them is when it can start programming itself i mean they can there's 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 programs i believe that can program themselves under specific circumstances and so this yeah. is this is the edge of kind of artificial intelligence consciousness. Can it program itself to do a task? Go read um, the old book called When Harley Was One. Um, it's by the guy who wrote a bunch of Star Trek episodes. I think he wrote Trouble with Tribbles. It's it's again a program. Harley is a I can't remember what the acronym stands for, um, but it's a program that that eventually learns to program itself. Yeah, and and it's fascinating because most of it is dialogue between the persons who started the programming, and then Harley talked back and forth. And you can see over time as you read the book that Harley gets more and more conscious. It sounds like me in my 20s, realizing that I'm a person and I can change myself and I can grow myself. I mean, was I conscious before then? I don't know. You know, right? But back to distractions. Yeah. <laughs> this, is real, this is a great dido into, into the areas. But back to distraction. One of the things that I think is really important to understand is that we have been sucked in along the way. We did not hop on this train. We just got here. I mean, I don't think people can look back and say when it happened. When did it happen that I became so vulnerable to being distracted? I don't know if they will look back, but it's we allowed it in. And it's not going away. I mean, it's not going away. They're just building more and more distractible kind of technology that distracts you even more. And, but you have to be the person 
who figures out how personally you can avoid it as best you can because um, it's sweeping you away. It's sweeping all of us away. Somebody asked me the other day, and I was doing an interview with somebody, I forget, and they asked me, well, what do you think in the long run, societally, what's going to happen? And my answer is, I worry that we'll get to a point like they did in, in the days when um, they had to do something globally about drugs or about cigarette smoking. When cigarette smoking got out of hand, which was kind of funny because that's when I grew up, everybody smoked. Um, my bar mitzvah, I put cigarettes on the table and matches, matchbooks and stuff. You remember that? Everybody smoked everywhere. Doctors smoked in their offices. And then all of a sudden they realized that smoking was bad for you. So they put all these commercials showing people what happens when you smoke for your whole life. I remember the Marlboro man, they showed that he had, had to have a thing cut in his here to breathe and he was still putting cigarettes there and smoking them. So that that is what happened with cigarettes and took a long time, obviously, warnings on packages and all that. But now smoking is way down and you don't see people smoking in general anywhere. Um, same thing with drugs. I don't know if you remember the commercials, this is your brain, splat with the egg, this is mm -hmm. your drugs. That was a whole campaign to try to help people understand that drugs could be dangerous and could fry your brain. Um, again, I don't know how effective it's been, but again, it's raised our awareness. I think we're going to have to have something like that, not in your joking aside, something like this is your brain, this is your brain on your phone. Mm -hmm. Like that, that we're just, we need somebody at a higher level to be able to say, look, the phone's great. It had a great ride with it. Now you need to cut it back a little bit. I mean, it's, you need to be in control, not the phone. And I think right now we're tugging away with that. The phone, sometimes I think we're in control of our phone. Sometimes I think the phone's in control of us. I think that's a good way to wrap up. <laughs> this conversation, Larry, is better than I expected. I have been fully engaged. You are incredibly brilliant. And so, you have answered all of my, my you've satiated my curiosity. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah. I do like to talk about this because I think it's it's real important. I think it's it's one thing to be an academic and you know talk to students about all this stuff and write research and publish these things in journals and stuff. But I really think that it's time that people stayed up and said enough is enough. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.